episode 131, the London Film Festival, part two. In this second, longer episode from the festival, Neil and Dario talk about films from the UK, America, Denmark, Iran, France, Finland and Japan as they get into the new films by Ryosuke Hamaguchi, Joel Cohen, Panar Panahi, Paul Verhoeven, Philip Barantini, Jonas Poe Rasmussen and Yuho Kusmanen. Also in this episode, Dario caught up with regular contributor Savina Petkova in real life at the festival to talk about, in addition to Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta, Julia Ducanau's Tatane, Terence Davies' Benediction and Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part 2. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me as ever, I'm delighted to say, as ever, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hello, Neil. How, how are things going? You well? I am well. I am, yeah, I am, I'm well. Yeah, life is, life is motoring on, and I'm... <laughs> relentlessly. Because <I'm> <laughs> nothing's going to stop it. <laughs> I am in control of the car. I yes. have not hit an ice patch yet. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm enjoying the drive, which is a good theme, actually, because I think I'm going to talk a lot about driving today. Yeah, I was so. going to say, looking at the titles of the things that you've seen, um, there is a lot of uh, motifs of traveling and driving, I think, going on. But for those, yeah, for everyone, this is our second London Film Festival episode um i was coming into this before before sunday neil i was coming into this with a little bit of trepidation like i haven't seen enough i just haven't seen enough but last <laughs> week was just full on bit of a nightmare but um yeah by by the time sunday came around i managed to see a couple of movies on on sunday and a couple of big ones so uh that was good good um cool in order to sort of talk more broadly and luckily enough you've seen the film that won the best film so uh <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I thought you were watching it as well, but you obviously yeah. just the week got away from you. So I'm glad one of us has seen it. Well, that was the yeah. the day my back spasms really kicked in. So uh, yeah, it it kind of it just didn't didn't happen. So um, yeah, I mean it's 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 been a, a stacked festival, hasn't it? I mean we haven't seen the the Gillen Hall, the Lost Daughter, Skiarmas, Petit Mamon is is something I you know we both missed, but. I'm going to see it at Brighton Film Festival and we're hopefully going to do a, an episode on it because it's coming up at the Cornwall Film Festival as well. That's right, yeah. It could be, if all goes to plan, our, f- our first live taping recording for goodness knows how long. Um, but yeah, we're doing something with them and hopefully it'll be that um, and we'll let people know if they're around. But yeah, it's, um, it was weird because that was on the it was on the press player. It was on the online press screening play and then it disappeared it was it was on my schedule i saw it on there and then yeah it just it, it mysteriously disappeared i don't know why they pulled it from the press screening because uh, yeah. it was very well reviewed and and very well received at the festival so 
an odd one. But um, yeah, really yeah. looking forward to both of those both of those films for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So we're we're going to talk a little bit about a range of movies, aren't we? Um, uh, we're going to save some of the. You're, you're going to talk a little bit about the ones that there's a couple that you've really loved. And I've got a couple of the big ones that I think have been really great. And then we've got an interview that I did with Savina Betkova, who is a freelance film critic who's seen an awful lot in combination in, as a kind of an amalgamation of Venice and London, because obviously the titles kind of swap around. So interesting to, to hear what she's got to say on some of the, the major releases. So, um, Neil, I don't know. Where, where do you want to start? Well, I guess I wanted to start with a... Um... A quick mention for the British film Boiling Point, which is a yeah set in a restaurant, stars Stephen Graham as a chef, and uh, sort of in this new restaurant, and it's it's set over one evening and it's all real time and it's one take, so it's one roving take set across the kind of evening where a lot of his personal and professional problems come to a head, and yeah, I just it's one of those ones where it's it's a risky bravura idea to do but I thought I thought it came off really well it was really enjoyable really gripping um the performances are superb you really get a sense of so many of the people in the in the restaurant both customers and staff and you know it it does a lot of things which are kind of very obvious foreshadowing but you kind of forgive it because it needs to you know it needs to get to certain places in order to to just kind of pull off this this kind of magic trick of of of, of the one take, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and it I just it's brilliant. And again, it's just it works really well because Stephen Graham is it's just so he's so watchable. Yeah. You know, he's so good. He kind of holds the whole thing together with his performance. And I just thought it was yeah, a really refreshing British movie. You know, sort of sits somewhere between thriller and drama, but mm. really really good. I really enjoyed that. So that I thought that I'd give that a quick mention. Yeah, it, 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 what's really it's really coincidental, actually, because this week with the students, we've been talking about realism versus formalism. This is the, you know, undergrad level one intro to these ideas. Yeah. And we got on to talking about films in the one take, films like Birdman or Victoria. In fact, I don't know if people have seen that that German movie. Um, and it's a really interesting kind of question as to whether you, you know... The filmic language has got to the point where you film things that are in, say, one-to-one in terms of time. You know what I mean? It doesn't sort of flash back or flash forward and everything is within the time that you would get in real life and within the one take, which traditionally, I think, has been kind of associated with realism. But now I think when you have films like this, it's whether that use of that particular device is just so manifestly obvious it becomes so overtly formalist you know what I mean was it something that you were sort of kind of in even though you're recognizing that this is a, a clearly a device that that is being deployed for a, a kind of film as film type of reason yeah absolutely it kind of I think for me it veered between the two I think that you know that there are times when you really realize that the yeah that this is a, a crafted you know organized and I think a lot of that is because sometimes, obviously, there's a there's a moment of performance which isn't you know isn't quite at the level of, of that character's or that actor's performance throughout. You know, there's a noticeable sure. even it's just tiny moments that kind of remind you that they've had to just you know they've had to cook in this part of the kitchen, and all of a sudden the camera's there and it's their turn, and they maybe haven't quite got that over the line. So it just kind of it, it brings you out of the realism 
you know so it does move between those two modes really yeah, 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 yeah. in the same way that victoria did you know but i think that in a similar way to that you know and and the director of that always talked about how keeping the mistakes in was intentional to remind people that this is a film <laughs> you know um yeah, yeah here yeah, it's yeah. the same you know it's i think you're supposed to get swept up in the tension of the kitchen and the the sort of the front the way it sort of shifts between yeah the, the, the kitchen space and the the restaurant space is 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 is, is really kind of gripping um but it's it's meant to be you know a film and i think it's very very the, the form is very much part of that even though the story and performance is by necessity kind of veer towards realism because of what can be achieved in that space over that amount of time yeah yeah absolutely so yeah that's a, a, a quick mention for you on that just very quickly for, for from me going right back to the the very beginning of the festival and i did mention this on the bonus but just very quickly to reiterate i really recommended um compartment number six and it's funny when you first turn up to a festival you see the first film it's like how am i going to get introduced in back into sort of you know the festival uh, experience in terms of watching one film after another and this was Yuho Kuzmanen who is the director of The Happiest Day in the Life of Ollie Mackey which obviously we we did on the podcast we did a live episode a, a, about and it's a story about a, um, a Finnish wom woman who's living in in Russia with a female partner and it's interesting how their their kind of relationship sets up um, this kind of dissatisfaction or questioning about whether she's in the right situation. It's kind of bohemian lifestyle in, in Russia she seems to be living, but it's almost kind of suggesting she doesn't quite fit in with that. And she ends up um, going on this trip through R Russia on the train, and it's set in kind of 1980s, so it's very much a sort of pre-1989 Cold War sort of environment. And, you know, the, the, the those sort of really interesting representations of traveling on trains and and meeting characters from from a sort of uh a, a cold war milieu as it, as it were it really sort of plays on that and she she goes into this um overnight train and ends up in in a compartment with a very gruff uh russian guy and and who is sort of drunk on the first night and you know you just think oh my god how is it how have i you know it's that situation where you go into a an environment and you're like how have i ended up in this horrible situation but it really is a sort of development of their of their relationship and and this idea of um how how the kind of the the, the beauty of our life experiences in the journey rather than the goal because she's searching for kind of like you know searching for an end point of happiness but really it's that experience of going through um a developing relationship that that didn't look like it was going to start particularly well and and what that gives to you is in, in terms of your your experience as a, as a human being and and really kind of an interesting film because it, it it ends on a really uplifting note when you think it's going to be kind of quite brutal and and, and sort of problematic so a really nice sort of opening to the festival I, I thought and really highly recommended cool yeah I know I saw that when it was on the can listing and yeah kind of was, was really excited to see it because really enjoyed the happiest day in the life of Ollie Mackey you know, I think it's mm. it was a really nice mix of, yeah, kind of West and Wes Anderson whimsy, but also a kind of really kind of honest, emotional, like you say, uplifting kind of like you, you really felt the conundrum in the characters, which I thought was really. Yeah. So, yeah, I was kind of excited. And anything set on a train is is, is, yeah, yeah, is yeah, it's yeah, good yeah, for yeah. me. So, yeah, another good recommendation. Hopefully both of those will get will get released at some point in the near future.
Awesome. Fantastic. Um, let's talk a little bit about Flea, because this is another one that I saw in the auditorium on the first day. And, you know, reading a little bit about it after seeing it, it really has sort of been a, um, a quite a lauded documentary animation that I think is, you know, the, the, the obvious comparison is with something like Waltz with Bashir, right? And uh, you saw it on the, um, the festival uh, online streaming service. So, uh, yeah, what, what did you make of it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was great. Um, yeah, it was, I sort of topped up the, the press screenings with a couple of the BFI player um, yeah. festival favorites that they, so I rented this, um, which was nice actually to be able to rent rent the things that, that were playing at the same time. And yeah, I watched it on, on Friday night. I just thought it was, yeah, really wonderful. Um, it's hard to know hard to know what to say about it really other than just it's it's i just thought it was really good you know like i thought mm. the story was great the 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 relate i really love the relationship between the filmmaker and um the main character you know in terms of yeah. the way the space that he gave him to to tell his story um just felt really really moving and honest um and it's mm. difficult yeah i guess it's difficult because i don't really want to give away much of the the content you know yeah because i think that the shifts in the story are so fascinating um in terms of how honest he is and 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 how he just has to you sort of spend time with the character and the animation does this really beautifully having to access memories that have been suppressed for for reasons that become apparent um it mm. felt like just a really wonderful way of spending time listening to someone tell their story you know in a way that you know, might be, might have happened on a podcast. Um, but, you know, mm. there was something about the animation that sort of put it in a space that I thought was, yeah, worked really, really well. And it's beautiful animation as well, which I think yeah. helped. I mean, there's always that question, isn't there, about when you are taking quite a, you know, stark, brutal story that has, you know, death in it and is related to, you know, contemporary questions about immigration and about the corruption of individual countries in the way that they treat immigrants um and also as, as you say that that sense of um suppression of um, but also acceptance of memories and your own sort of culpability in or, or <laughs> your own guilt in being somebody who got out yeah. you know what i mean and having to sort of deal with that which is really kind of stark. Um, it, and it's interesting to me what the the question of what the animation br dr brings to that or allows, say, for example, a Western audience, because I think that, you know, I don't think I'm remiss in sort of saying, you know, to, trying to get this film out so that, so that a broadest pop possible um, festival and Western audience will see it is part of the reason it gets made in, in many ways. You know, it's trying to sort of, highlight the, the the plight of of um immigrants who are coming from countries where it's it seems like globally it's increasingly difficult to you know these pathways for people to get out are just being closed all the time and yeah that that what does the animation actually bring to that or what what does it do and and, and i suppose for me it it kind of it, it makes it a little bit more difficult or or it, it it stops you immediately either just switching off because it's just too difficult and too harrowing to take or it it actually uh, allows that sense of a more you know universal 
aspects of the story that you, maybe you can empathize with because you don't necessarily see directly, oh, this is just Afghanistan and or wherever, you know, the typical stories. Do you know what I mean? It, it makes it... It makes it kind of interestingly more more. I don't want to say it in a in a flippant way, like more accessible. But there's something about that that allows a, a I don't know a, a sort of um, allows an engagement with the elements of the story that may be more difficult. What that that, that in, in in other forms may be easy to just dismiss or. Ignore. I mean, I don't know whether you agree with that, whether that's the case or not, but, you know. No, no, I think I was going to say, I was going to sort of add to that. I think that it, what it does is it sort of collapses the time and the space so that it's you can't just sort of say, well, this was 30 years ago, you know, because the, the animation doesn't make it, it doesn't make it feel like it's 30 years ago or 40 years ago. You know, it, it feels like it could be now. And it's it's not specific. It doesn't make it not specific to Afghanistan in this case or, or Denmark, even where he ends up, you know, that there's mm. a, the animation sort of creates this, like you say, a kind of almost a universal space. But the the voices um, That's the point, and the specifics yeah. of place that are mentioned kind of make, sort of have that have those two things sitting side by side in a in a way that I think is easier to dismiss if it's just archive footage and yeah. you know in a flat in Copenhagen kind of thing. So I think it it does a really good job of that. And what it also does, I think, is I watched it on the same day I watched Bad Luck Banging, um, okay, <laughs> the Radu Judah. And I just wow. thought, like, God, oh, what, what a, yeah, what a day of films about how terrible the world is, like, just how terrible people are, you know. And what was really fascinating about Flea was it felt like it was the animation helped it be very obviously about now, you know. And but but also a reminder that yeah, those pathways and how it's not more difficult now, <laughs> you know. Like the the journey that he, this character has to go on to get out of Afghanistan is brutal and you know 30 years ago it was absolutely brutal and this, those to see those stories um animated in terms of the the, the passage that that they have yeah, to take yeah, yeah, yeah. A, it's just like it could be now but it's also it was, it was it's both universally now for so many people but it's also this person's specific story and it's it was brutal you know yeah, yeah. Um, how do you do people that, people in containers for lock, being locked in containers for you know weeks on end how do you if you've got the voice and somebody's telling you that's what happened and this is what this is what people were experiencing and when they got out how traumatized they were and you know people were dead and and it's like how do you, it's almost as if you need a blank screen and just to listen to the voice you know, if it, you tried to do something like the Arbor, like a recreation, you just couldn't do it. So I suppose animation is a kind of necessary choice, maybe in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like you say, because it would would it feel trite and exploitative if you've got actors and you're mm. and th- th- you know, th- there's that film a documentary about the Chilean, um, not the Chilean, the Thai, the Thai cave rescue coming out. Sure. You know, where they recreated, you know, they recreated the the scenes. Um, you know, but by necessity rather than, you know, but, yeah. but like, yeah, how do you, how do you do it? And each case is going to be different, but I do think that, yeah, kind of, it would have felt really exploitative to film a cargo container full of actors pretending to be, it just wouldn't have felt mm. as, it's dig, as dig, oh, dignified is probably a terrible word, but there's certainly a, a, t- a respect for those people's lives that the animation gives them in a way that I think is harder to achieve when you're, when you're dropping in scenes. I think it's different yeah, if yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. If your formal approach is to 
to do almost like a United 93, like we're going to recreate the whole thing. Mm. But when you're when you're cutting away to, it, it, I just think I think that'd be really difficult. And this this creates a unity of sort of tone, which brings all of those elements in on the same on the same level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is. I mean, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if this you know picks up a lot more critical praise as it gets released and and you know in terms of I think it's tipped for Oscars as well yeah, isn't it yeah so it is be interesting it is interesting indeed because I think it, it, it is it is that good in terms of both the both the story and the way it's the way it's been done with the animated you know and documentation of the the voices as the driver of the of the animation yeah and there's a scene towards the end like a family scene God, it's yeah. an LGBTQ story as well. You know, the character is a, is a gay man, and there's a there's a scene with the family. Yeah, yeah, at the it end, is. Yeah, yeah, which is surprising and just so so wonderful. It's so wonderful. It's just, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a. It's kind of a payoff that you just kind of like. Oh, there is there is a sort of, you know, sparks of redemption in in yeah. in yeah. people. You know, yeah, and, and, and plays against the stereotypes <laughs> that the film is is not uh, the archetypes that the film is is full of. You know, and you, you're expecting something else and it doesn't yeah, come yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. So, so refreshing. Yeah, well mm. worth seeing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so at this point, maybe we should uh, um, play our interview or my interview with, uh, with Savina, who talked about, again, a range of films, some of the stuff that she liked and, and particularly one, one of the films that she didn't like, which was uh, a, great, a great listen. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is me talking to the film critic Savina Betkova. Why are you still smoking? What does Daddy feel about it? Daddy pretends he doesn't know anything about it. That's my, one of my favourite qualities about oh, Yes, like a truly loving person. <laughs> Patrick. Hi. How's your film? Good. Did you avoid the temptation to be obvious? I think so. That's all you can yeah. hope for, isn't it? One, one. feel when Anthony died? I was uh, very concerned for you. No, not what I felt. What, what did you feel? I never felt through you. I just wanted to ask you a few questions about Anthony. Make a memorial for him. No one's giving a direction. No, well, me. I'm the director. You want the camera here? Um, maybe here. Make actually, no, sorry, sorry, here. Sounds fairly typical for an art school. Better come and work on the farm for a bit. I think he's contributing to cinema. You're forcing me to have a tantrum. Yeah, he's contributing shit. That's what he's contributing. <laughs> In the real life, this is three days before your character died. Is this quite difficult for you? They're obviously dealing with this unimaginable loss. I'm struggling to recognise whether I'm missing Anthony as the person he was or whether I'm missing that intimacy. You have to learn how to take critics. What did it make you feel? And I have to find a way to make things work. None of us have any idea what's going on. You have too much faith in me, I always say this. You doubt yourself, man, I won't let you do it. <laughs> I won't let you do it. What, what has changed? I don't want to show life as it plays out. I want to show life as I imagine it. So, Savina, welcome back to The Cinematologist. I'm also happy to be back there, you know. 
Yeah, it's um, really interesting because I've kind of we've, we've see, seen each other bits and pieces. Our paths have crossed as we've gone, uh, you know, through the festival. Yeah. You've been to a lot more films than I have, but you also went to Venice. Yeah. So a lot of the films have crossed over from Venice to here. But what's it been like to be back at festivals, like in real life? Yeah, it's a weird one, um, especially being back in London, seeing it open up and, you know, joining massive queues. That was a, that was a <laughs> new thing because queues were not existent in Venice, not this year, not the previous year at all, because of a um, flawed, but still a ticketed system uh, for accredited press. Um, but yeah, it's... It's great to see it all come alive. It's great to sit in auditoriums with people yeah. with or without social distancing. It's still amazing to hear the gasps and um, just be be part of a whole. It's great and it's wonderful to see friends and it's wonderful to see friends in the same screening rooms as well. Yeah. Not to put an end on the solitary viewings that we self-imposed. No, I, absolutely. I think I've seen sort of people and, and heard, you know, listen to people talking and also sort of caught up with people on Twitter who are kind of just reveling back in, in that, you know, idea of being in the, experiencing the, the cinema in the auditorium. And I think people have really missed that more than I've, I've kind of actually realised in terms of, we can watch so much on streaming, but people sit, you know, especially sort of film festival goers seem to have missed that. Yeah, for sure. And it, the, the the weird interchangings of times don't don't really seem to eclipse that for sure. No. Um, this euphoria of being back. Um, and as I and mentioned, the queues um, at the LFF, <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole they other thing. They were bad, weren't they? Uh, because, it, I mean, it's about access and it's about exclusivity. So the idea of being back in a film auditorium with a lot of people uh, seems to gesture towards um, yeah. bigger, bigger access, I guess rather than personalized screeners of whoever can make it. But at the same time, as for a fact, I noticed so many people got turned away from yeah. seeing the films this year that it uh, just prompts me to ask a lot of questions about why were so many people accredited if you can accommodate all of them. And it's a shame because these films deserve to be seen. It's a long festival and people cannot always make yeah. it. And it's... Yeah. Did you watch much on the on the online system? Not at all, not at all this year because right. uh, yeah, I was one of the people that prioritized in person screenings. Yeah, and I had the opportunity because luckily I live in London and it's easy for me. Sure. But um, I noticed that the online selection was not as um, as greatly curated as it should be, uh, especially with the allocated time slots. I also think that's a question of reduced access as well. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Just remembering the first time I got press accreditation with the podcast back in Berlin, and I sort of realised how much, you know, film criticism is is kind of like a Hunger Games of people all <laughs> all trying to you know get their copy to you know often often unpaid sometimes paid but I mean, where can people go to find your stuff that you've been writing? Well, I'm writing as a freelancer, so I'm all over the place as much as I as much as I can. I write in both in Bulgarian and English, but primarily in English. I recently published with the Calvert Journal. Um, I did an article for the first female Bulgarian filmmaker, and that was that was really great. Uh, I am preparing a piece for Movie Notebook for their upcoming release for Lamb, right. which was playing at LFF. Big recommend. The lamb baby is very cute. <laughs> we'll talk about that maybe in a minute. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. Um, and uh, I do sometimes bits and pieces for Screen Queens, The Quietus, and uh, Massive Cinema. Great. So we'll link to that stuff on the uh, on the show notes for the podcast. So right back at the beginning, the first thing that, that we saw in the same auditorium, 
you'd seen it in Venice the first time. That was Julia Decornau's Titane, right? Yes, I actually saw it in Sarajevo, which makes it a bit weirder, the whole context around me. Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember you saying that. Me seeing it in in this uh, former Yugoslav uh, country as a midnight-ish screening with a lot of reactions to a particularly, you know, extreme French film, uh, that that definitely gave it an aura that was then um, yeah rethought when I saw it again with London audiences. Yeah, yeah, because people were walking out, weren't they? You were saying in yeah, Sarajevo. Yeah, most Sarajevo. of the, most of the people walked out in Sarajevo, but I can imagine like this is the Eastern European morals that did not want to stick around to the very end with the protagonist. Right. Um, and I don't judge them for that. Obviously, it's a choice, and it's good to have this choice, but it just put everything in a different context. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> And you said that like it, it actually grew on you the second time you you'd seen it. You were uh, you you enjoyed it the second time and you saw more in it. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I really, really, I was really how really thankful that um, I had this opportunity to see it again. And I've been thinking about it for so long. It just percolates on my mind for for a while. And um, I am not one of the skeptics about this film. Right. I'm not skeptical at all about the vitality it brings to filmmaking. And um, just when it comes to its structure and its effect and the visual language it uses, I think it it seems more convincing the second time around. Even yes, right, yeah. Because when I watched it, I was trying to trying to think about what what things mean, and I think probably that's the the, the wrong way to approach <laughs> this movie because th- there isn't really a kind of explanation. A character who is essentially in the first sort of uh, few sequences of the movie gets into a car accident as a child and then you see them having an implant, you know, in their brain, which is this metal, obviously, you know, this sort of metal implant to keep their brain functioning or, or whatever. And then it cuts to very quickly later on where we have this character that we follow into this nightclub, which is essentially a kind of car fetish Nightclub, really, yeah, yeah, exactly, and you know, there's this very famous scene now where where there is actually the character is having sex with a car, car sex, and car then sex. it moves into she is pregnant by this car, and it's yeah, it's really you have to kind of go with that just on the sort of symbolic level because I mean that was the problem I had with it. What, what was it? It kind of cut across into kind of realist territory after that. You know, there's a sort of thriller element, but then it's sci-fi. You know, it's kind of extreme French extremist horror so there's a lot going on in the movies really of course yeah but i was very intrigued by the way it's post-humanist elements and you know technophilic if Mm. you can call it that uh, were intertwined with the realism of a story about a family yeah and i think the film can be easily simplified and be be you know reframed as a film about father-daughter relationships and just family building and it's not a revolutionary thing to say. Like, for example, it doesn't reinvent the family uh, as, I don't know, Yorgos Lanthimos does or other mm. uh, extreme French film, uh, filmmakers that criticize the, the family unit in our times. Um, but it does gesture towards something more universal and more mythologic in a way. Mm. Uh, the, the birth of this... New, Baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. new life there um, does not take away at all um, the you know world making qualities of the film yeah and I mean it's interesting because I think that the ending that again that was another thing that I was kind of like well that's an interesting choice to make because it transferred the almost the sort of whole meaning of the film from 
the central protagonist we'd followed all the way through onto the father and, you know, what he represented and what then he was going to do, which I thought was a very interesting choice. Uh, I would not criticize that choice, to be fair, because the father was always implicated from the very beginning. Mm. So the father father figure was as, as an enormously important part in, in the main character's life and yeah. in her character formation. So she was never without him, mm. in a sense. So I felt like the father was actually a continuation of her even more than the actual baby. Yeah. You can say that. So yeah. it was always this duality of them. Um, yeah. This is why I took it I took it too hard. It was it was it was such a beautiful ending. Mm. Um there's something something like a love song in this film. I can't quite <laughs> place my finger on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just going back to people sort of walking out, I can imagine that that, that there are people who are kind of like, I cannot I just cannot buy any of that. I mean it reminded me a lot of have you seen the the seventies film Demon Seed? No, I actually oh, you should, haven't. You should check that out because it very much has this kind of uh technophilic element to it or post-humanist element yeah. and it's really uh, I just think there was quite a big parallel I don't know if the director of that film but you know a lot of people have actually made made connections to like Claire Denis and this you know this notion of the body and because the way it shoots yeah. the body and this kind of stuff so yeah very interesting film for sure um, so what else have you really really liked then that you've seen over because the, there's been a lot I mean it's been stacked really as a festival hasn't it Mm, okay, let me see. Uh, this was m- me at LFF basically catching up on my Cannes films that I right. haven't seen because I didn't go to Cannes. So I was very excited to see The Souvenir Part 2. Okay. Um, so the ju- new film by Joanna Hogg. And I am in total awe by it. I thought it was great. It was very different from the first film. Okay. So a lot of people that didn't like the first film, I'm expecting they might have a chance to like this one or the other way around. I Is it similar in tone or different in tone? Oh, I think it's quite different in oh, tone. Okay. Definitely, yeah, because it's exploring everything, how it takes off after the actual ending of the first film right so if the first film is about building a relationship the um, the second film is about surviving its aftermath right it's a deep film about grief and how transformative cinema can be as as simple as that right uh but it's uh, it's very expansive so does the does the main character is it later on in her life when we're following her making films or in yes. the industry? Exactly, exactly. So she drops she drops the plan to make a film about Sunderland and the working class family there, um, and decides to make a film about her um, deceased ex boyfriend Anthony. Okay. So it's yeah, it's about surviving through cinema yeah Um, and people have described it as a love letter to cinema and filmmaking but i think it's way more than just a meta narrative all of that it's um yeah i really i really like the the boldness of her of of joanna hogg's moves uh in this in this particular one especially one of the last scenes of the film takes on takes the protagonist on a very different journey that is not the realism that we're used to with Joanna Hogg. So I think that elevated it a lot and it seems like this is what the film needed to kind of wrap it up as a more mystical experience, let's say it like that. Yeah, because the the first one was kind of criticized in you know in some context for again that that kind of idea of a uh, somebody who is is in a middle class or even upper class kind of upbringing then putting a particular lens on those who are not within that class, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like there's a lot of sort of class politics been been sort of said about about the way it, it, it constructs that character. But then again, there was the whole 
the sense of the relationship between the two main protagonists in the first one and that that idea of where the power lies and people being manipulated and all and it was had a very weird vibe didn't it you know what I mean in the first one is it does it kind of I mean you say there it goes into sort of meta narrative metaphysical areas what does that kind of look like or you know how does that come across um well as i said there's a very there's a very dreamy sequence there's a lot of hallucinations going oh, okay. on there's some ghostly presences here and there there are echoes um from the first film so there's a lot of um a lot of things for the spectator to work with and to rebuild the fantasy of having just lost someone gotcha. in a devastating right. way um, so that's both uh, oral and um, and visual, and it works. It works very well. But the film is not nostalgic for its first part. Let's put it like that. Right, it takes okay. on it takes on a bolder move in its meandering because Julie, the protagonist, she is constantly accused of not knowing what she's doing. Right. Okay. Yes. Is that in terms of being a filmmaker? Yeah. yeah exactly. Okay. As a filmmaker, she she gets criticized a lot because her ideas change and she's not very good at planning this right. personal project. Um, and it doesn't feel like a mea culpa of female filmmaking, not at all. Right. It's just the natural process of finding your, your way after after a huge um, devastating fact that happens to you. Yeah. And I, I should notice they should note the presence of a illuminating actress whom I adore. Uh, her name is Ariane Labed and she plays a, a secondary role. Okay. Uh, she was mostly famous for Greek films. She is Greek and French in origin. And um, yeah, she's the star of Batina Rachel Sangaris Attenberg, um, and only lately her BBC series uh, Trigonometry as well. Right. Um, and she plays she plays another filmmaker that helps and plays the character of Julie in her meta film as gotcha. well. Right. Yeah, and she brings a, a proper tenderness and, and strength to the film that is contra contrary to Julie's fragility and. Um, her trying to figure out where she stands. Because mm. the first one was as well a lot about kind of like the idea of confidence through filmmaking for women, you know. Mm. And I think I'm hoping, well, I'm hoping to go to be able to see it at Brighton because it's going to the Brighton Film Festival. Oh, great. So I might get to see it after all. But um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting how that kind of develops because these are autobiographical, semi-autobiographical. You know, she's commenting on that idea of being a woman in filmmaker, but yeah. then, but not in a very not necessarily in a way of, oh, this is exactly what happened to me. It's kind of more impressionistic than that, I would say, the first one anyway. Yeah, of course, because otherwise it would be self-serving yeah. as, and it would not be a film. It would just be an exercise. Mm. I don't know, psychotherapeutic exercise, I guess. And that, <laughs> yeah, but plenty of film directors do do that, don't course, they? Of <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah. what makes Souvenir 2 stand out in that, in that regard, I think it's exactly this impressionistic quality mm -hmm. of it. And... And just the, the scale of the of the film um, in terms of talent involved, the acting acting is brilliant. Um, mise en scène score, all of these elements are impeccable, and it doesn't seem like um, it's all to you know caress someone's ego, right. meaning the filmmaker's ego this time around. So that's always great. Great, great. Can we just quickly mention Spencer at this point? Because I, I, I feel like I can't comment on this movie because as we discussed, I have such a downer on the royal family. It's almost <laughs> kind of... And I said to you that my problem with the movie is the fact that it's about the royal family and you can't escape the, the, the kind of cliches and stereotypes of the royal family. Even though I think this does a good attempt at that, they all still end up being cardboard cutouts, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Whereas, you know, the whole film is revolving around 
Kristen Stewart and her performance. But what did you what did you think of it? Well, yeah, I was I was thinking about it as soon as I mentioned ghosts and apparitions in my mm. uh, in my you know semi analysis in the souvenir, <laughs> because there are ghosts and apparitions involved in Spencer too. Um, it's a very gothic looking film. Yeah. Um, and that that was a fresh fresh thing to bring in for sure. Uh, and I feel very happy to be unburdened by um, representation of the royal family and my predilections of what that would be. Yeah. Uh, so I just I just took it as a film as a film by a filmmaker whose work I dearly love. Yeah. But I would say it's it doesn't come close to what Neruda does as a biopic for sure. And I really missed the free floating Terence Maliki elements of Jackie for yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, whereas Spencer was much more controlled. I, I had this feeling, but it probably also echoes the way the protagonist feels most of the time mm. uh, in the confined space. But uh, yeah, there were moments where it, um, when the film kind of deflated for me, but there are other really strong moments that still stay with me. For example, the ghostly sequences and all, all the Diana eating her pearls moments as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing I, I wanted to see more. I thought it, it could have gone really off the reservation in terms of being sort of gothically yeah. weird, you know what I mean? Can you imagine the whole two-hour film just exactly. based on yeah. these moments? I would really love that. A slow cinema of Diana being imprisoned yeah, in her yeah, own yeah. body and in her own mind that would be a real close-up of, of the character but yeah. i guess it was important for storytelling and funding purposes maybe as well to keep in mind all of these secondary characters like but, timothy spall was good yeah no, no timothy, timothy spall was great but I, I i thought the problem was it was always wanting to redeem diana as the as the great mother you know, which is the which is the classical narrative in British media. You know what I mean? And it didn't want to go too far into she's kind of having these hallucinations and losing her mind and th and this kind of stuff. And look, I mean, you mentioned it when we were talking about it that the the whole bulimia element of it, the eating disorder element. At the end of the movie, it's a happy ending, and she's eating Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> with her, with the two boys. And it's wow, like, yeah, that's it's very really weird. To it's very it idealistic like as well. You know, yeah. So I, I mean, I, yeah. But I have to say, I did. Like the the actress who plays the queen, who has one line in the whole movie, yeah. still manages to be brilliant, and, and like <laughs> just in her gestures and her glances, manages to kind of look like I'm making everybody do what I say, just in, just with a glance. Exactly. She's really good. Yeah, the, the film is abundant of these kind of maybe s sterile looking performances, but are great and imposing control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in the way that Pablo Lorraine engages with the actual mise-en-scene in the house and the staircases and just, you know, I could watch Diana walking through hallways just forever. Mm. Um, I like this um, combination of movement and stillness that was also present in the way that, um, the acting was conducted and the way that the film was shot in the location. Yeah, that was yeah, also yeah. great. Oh, it looked really amazing. Kristen Stewart is great, is great in it. I mean, it's it does that thing where it is it is an impression but it turns into an acting performance and i don't think it, you have to you know people complain about you know when when actors have to be, have to do impressions of famous people to 
And yeah, but they kind of have to, you know what I mean? Well, you can't get around that. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the big question here is, can we discuss the film without discussing its subject matter? Mm. It, just in, in, in general, is yeah, that yeah, something yeah, yeah, we yeah. can do? And how much the subject matter can affect our perception of the film and the way the film is constructed around it? Yeah. So I'm, I'm really curious to know what you think about in this particular case, because you said it's a problem for you. You cannot escape this in a... Um, well, it's just, you know, the, the, the joke, like, say, for example, when you have the, the, the joke moment when the corgis get out of the car, that's there, yeah. you know, and then you've got them shooting with the picnic tables and that's there. And it's kind of like that, you know, the sort of crownification of, of the royal family. And I think that, you know, there's a lot, like you say, I think there's a lot that's kind of interesting about the film, but I wanted to, you know, I kind of wanted to be wanted it to be really, really weird, you know what I mean? And so yeah. really highly critical, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it, it did hold back for so long. Yeah, because the, these moments with, with the whole family, for example, just seem more like fillers than yeah, anything yeah, else. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the way that uh, Kristen Stewart was interacting with the kids. Yeah. Uh, I think this is where her actual problems, the Diana's actual problems managed to shine through mm. because she was being called out by the kids yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in ways, ways and ways. Yeah. And yeah. I found that very endearing. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah, and as you say, the, the soft Timothy Spall character, as well as the eye of surveillance for, for who was everywhere, was he, he was very good because he's usually a kind of lovable figure, but he really had a menace to him, I think, in this. Definitely. The only thing that bothers me is that it was a very classical thing to put a character like him there yeah, to yeah, be yeah. a surveillance uh, to everything that's yeah. happening. Because if you remove that and you dust off the actual classical narrative elements of the film, I think it would become a much more intriguing one mm. um, because it's very neatly built yeah, for yeah. me to properly love it. Mm. Yeah. No, no, I, I, yeah, I'd see that for sure. Okay, so what, what else did you uh, particularly like? What, did you, what do you want to talk about? Maybe I would say something about a film I didn't like. Okay, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> so yesterday morning, I stepped in into Paul Verhoeven's Benedetta. Very excited because okay. everyone's been talking about this nun movie for ages now. And I've been looking forward to it as well. Sure. As this highly provocative piece of art. And I really liked Elle. I'm a huge fan of Showgirls. Yeah. His, his filmmaking, I think, is very up my alley. And then I really wanted to leave after the first... 30 minutes yeah. I was I was really disappointed and I was just so bored well I, that's I, unusual for Verhoeven I mean if you hate it it's like different exactly, to being bored isn't it yeah. exactly I would have preferred to properly hated it to mm. feel something some emotion but I was I was so offended by how sexless it felt for me how mm-hmm. um, non-engaging the sex scenes were so what was it about broadly so it's about um this probably saint um, in a it's a convent um, during plague times um, and this sister Benedetta is supposedly a bride of Christ she perceives herself as a bride of Christ and has some visions and um, thinks that she can save the whole city basically she befriends a lonely girl that just comes into the coven and they engage in sexual relations um, under the strict surveillance of Mother Superior, right. the Mother Superior, who is played brilliantly by Charlotte Rampling. Okay. Yeah, in comparison to <laughs> yeah. Virginia Fira, who's acting, I found 
really lazy unfortunately right. she did not convince me at all okay. at any given point not in 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 the malice or the domination uh, complex or the messiah complex right. not at all and the uh, eroticism that was supposed to be there in the film was just not existing for me which i find a shame because both virginia and daphne patakia are extremely attractive women right and just yeah, I, I felt that it was a lot of a lot of lost potential, okay. and the film did not manage to touch me in in the sense of um, a satirical rendering of what religion should be. I felt like the film didn't say anything about. I mean, it was religion. supposed to be a critique of religion. Exactly, yeah, but yeah, I didn't I feel I didn't feel that at all. There was not enough distance for me to have this kind of layer spilled off between what the film is reflecting on and what the film is actually showing and agreeing with. Sure. So I was I was very 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 surprised, not okay. in a good way, unfortunately. Well, that's interesting. I've, it's funny because I've got a, I'm seeing a film tomorrow and I can't remember now if it's Benedetta or Benediction. <laughs> yeah. I keep getting them mixed up. Can Please you don't name your films the same. You know what I mean? <laughs> but anyway, I might be seeing that tomorrow, but I might be seeing the other one. That's I, got I think I think Benedetta is playing tomorrow. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 But Benediction, amazing film. Right. Okay. Now that's that's the Terence Davis film that everyone's been waiting for. Okay. For so sure. what, what what's what's that one about? So uh, Benediction is about the English poet, writer, and soldier Siegfried Sassoon. Okay. And we follow him as um, as a youngster as he's enlisted in the army and as as in his later life so it's a film about repression about homosexuality about poetry about life grief bitterness and um all the nuances of a lived life right okay so, is it got all the is it i mean does the does the sort of poetry seep into the way that it's when it's made and you would in the way you would imagine a, a Terence Davis movie absolutely. usually do, does yeah. absolutely yes so recitals are there um the strict camera movements are there to also counter this free-flowingness of the narrative mm. we have um back and forth uh retrospectives and actual flashbacks and later life all intertwined together so this mm. kind of literary sense, um, sense of time is obviously constructed and deconstructed at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the acting is impeccable. Peter Capaldi is plays the older Siegfried and right. his presence is equally um, charming and it makes you feel the slightest amount of aggression that kind of pulls you into the character even more. Right, yeah. right, right. Great. So I, I really, really recommend I, this one. I, I can imagine Neil will really like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I, I know he likes Terence Davis anyway. Beautiful. It doesn't bother me, but it's, it is good. So <laughs> I'm sure he'll be happy to hear that that's, uh, that's good. So, I don't know, should we finish off with Lamb? Mm, what to say about Lamb? I would say to everyone, give it a go. It's coming out in December. Right. It's a movie release and it's a very movie film. Who's the director? In the best again? possible way. The film is by Valdemar Johansson and it's his feature debut. And it does look like a feature debut and it's restrained, mm -hmm. Nordic scapes. Um, but the way that the premise is worked in, you know, mm. the there's a half human half lamb baby in there right. um <laughs> the way that is worked into the narrative i find very very meticulous and um also not intrusive right i had a feeling that the film might be um too big of a mouthful but it's actually not it's very restrained 
um, in in its aesthetic choices as well. There's a lot of long takes. Right. So it's the sort of Nord- Nordic type stuff, gothic, noirish, or how does it come across? Yeah, I think people also describe it as horror. There is a little bit of violence, but most of the time I found it surprisingly wholesome. Right. Because the presence of uh, the land baby is so uplifting that you cannot help but just feel for it. Um, and I, I remember um, seeing stills from very, very early stages um, when it was at the script stage and they were just still trying to figure out what the lamb is going to look like. Um, and I must say, it looks so much better now. I am I am a huge fan of the lamb baby. and I have More a, than the car baby, which one's the best out of the two? Uh, <laughs> I, would say, I would say the lamb baby is okay. cuter because it doesn't have a human face as well. Oh, right. okay. And I found that quite subversive because usually when you have human-animal um, hybrids, you would expect to have a human face in the film because it's easier for the spectator to empathize with a human face. Yeah, of course. Uh, Because with animals, we empathize in a completely different way. Mm. Um, And my reaction is an example of that because Mm. I keep saying how cute it is. And this is what we used to seeing animals in film and our reaction is especially when the animal is you know, not impaired in sure. any way or, or a bit more photogenic breed um, sure. to be sure. drawn completely into their cuteness as an animal, as a non-human object. Um, so is it a film then that's about sort of, uh, you know, the relationship between humans and animals and how we take that for granted or what's it, what's it sort of alluding to? Well, the main protagonists are, are, are a couple that has apparently lost their child. Okay, but that right. doesn't get talked about at all. They live in a secluded place in Iceland um, and they have a farm with um, sheep and lambs as well so this is what they do for work and in a way yeah it's about the the, the labor relations that they have with there until a baby a human lamb baby gets born right, okay. into their hands and then it comes it comes to them it's like almost a gift for them and um, I think it's still a film about human human to human relationships right. to be uh-huh. fair and what we construct as family um, and, and again there's a lot of criticism of what the family should be here as well and, and it's curious that we have it in the same year as um, as Titan because mm. as you said the, the different babies are kind of also an embodiment of our um, uncertain future yeah. which is changing, which is hybrid in many, many ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's playing on that shockingness that what it's saying anyway, and it sounds like this is similar, that it's playing on the idea that, you know, what you thought the family was is not, and no. you have to, you know, it doesn't matter how shocking it is then, or, you know, to you, then it doesn't matter because the family is going to become something else, but you know, or it's always transforming, perhaps. Of you know? course, yeah, and it's not simple psychoanalysis here, but we just live in the in the in the times of Anthropocene and it's impo- sometimes it's impossible to imagine the future. Yeah, yeah, no, um, no, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Great, well, Savina, thanks so much for taking the time out to talk to me, I appreciate it. It was a huge pleasure, Dario. Always happy to be on The Cinematologist.
yeah thank you Savina for coming back on the podcast and yeah lovely chat uh, Daria I really enjoyed that and yeah I don't mind being outed as a Terence Davies fan um, I, <laughs> I thought I thought that would be a safe right, bet isn't know? it I know particularly liked his recent yeah, work yeah, yeah. A Quiet Passion it's a film I've been talking about a lot with screenwriters this year it's uh, yeah I th- I'm really enjoying right. this period of work and I'm very excited about Benediction so I'm glad that it is as good as I'd hoped um, I trust Savina on that um, but uh, yeah curious yeah. to hear about the Benedetta she was not a fan um, and you saw it as well didn't you so what did you make of yep. it were you on were you with Savina or were you somewhere else <laughs> no 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 I, I, I just went because it was um, I got a press ticket for the Royal Festival Hall um, in a public screening, so it wasn't it wasn't full. So I was kind of sat right up at the back of the festival hall. But the the, the screen in there is massive. It's actually a great place to watch watch movies. It looked like the um, um, like the uh, like the Berlin, the palace at the Berlinale. Like yeah, it, it is a little bit. It's the closest I think auditorium that has that sort of Berlinale auditorium vibe. I think. Um, and <laughs> I know exactly what Savina is talking about, and I can't argue with her assessment of it, but. What's re- what was really funny was just I laughed all the way through. It's almost as if like you know um, that that it's like the last days of Sodom, Benny Hill style. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's like you know it's carry on nurse. It it really does get to that level at times, and you know the 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 level of the level of British tittering in the audience was just like a joy to behold. You know, and I mean. I don't know whether I'll get in, in, in trouble for this, but the tittering at the tits was just was just <laughs> incredible. Do you know what I mean? It, I mean, and you know, there will be people like this is mis, you know, Paul Verhoeven, kind of misogynist, you know, gratuitous nudity, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I can't I can't deny that. But if you just take it almost at the level of farce, I kind of laughed all the way all the way through and. You know, and anyone who sort of takes this seriously as a, a as a comment on, I mean, you get there is interesting stuff in there on the on the 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 way that um, religious organized religion through the ages is just a construction and a and a performance. And can you c- c- that level of performance has been utilized by the. Um, you know, the protagonists of religion in terms of, the, oh, this is, even if I'm lying about, you know, my, the, the miracles that, that I think are, even if I'm lying about um, this miracle actually coming somehow materially through God, I've actually constructed that in some way because you've got these, these moments where she, she it's ambivalent to a, to a certain degree as to whether she's cutting herself to kind of mimic the stigmata and and fooling people as to that is a miracle, or whether she does that because she feels God is telling her to do that, to channel it. Do you know what I mean? There's a, that whole question of, of, about the level of performance and the reality of a miracle and this kind of thing is an interesting question in terms of sort of theology in a sense. But when you get sort of imaginary sequences of... of Jesus on a white horse, kind of sexy Jesus comes in with his with, with his gear on and starts starts you know um, offing people with a sword so just so that he can save the the damsel in her imaginary you know what I mean and that then that kind of gets crossed over with um, 
you know the lesbian sex scenes with a with, with a Virgin Mary dildo. You you just you just get to the point of this is this is off the reservation. And if you just kind of laugh at it all and and sort of say this is so over the top to be farcical, then it's it's kind of enjoyable on that level. But I do you know having thought about it more, I do think Savina's right in terms of it's it's Verhoeven trying to be provocative, but being provocative in such a ridiculously silly way if you're provoked by this you're kind of taking it way way too seriously and I wasn't bored in the same way that she was but I think that her her boredom with it was to do with you know this is just this is kind of stupid and I've got better things to do with my time you know that reaction is very definitely a a valid one I think um yeah and it seems to be a quite common one you know I think that the, the, the people who haven't liked the film have not not necessarily responded in that kind of like oh he's a misogynist kind of way i think that enough people understand the verhoven project yeah. over the years to but that there that kind of sense that it didn't hit for them and it was just yeah like they couldn't see they they thought it was an easy provocation in yeah, a way yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. show showgirls or something or, or you know even basic instinct is 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 more clouded in something else you mm. know that's um, so yeah interesting that yeah, uh, yeah 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 i mean you know if it, it feels like a you know uh kind of return a tribute to Robin Asquith which yeah. I think um which I'm all for having yeah. seen King Rocket and, earlier this year you know it's <laughs> yeah I mean I mean to be fair I think you know the idea of it being kind of sexless it is because and and it and it does do that thing where the the idea of what an old white man thinks lesbian sex is is yeah that it's just that doesn't that it just it just doesn't work in yeah. that, in that sense but um but then they had he had that he had those criticisms about the relationship indeed. the portrayal of lesbians in Basic Instinct. He did, in, indeed. You know, so, and some of the some of the kind of social female social relationships in Starship Troopers. It's mm, not a new criticism. No, no, you know, it's it's not. something's never never really worked out. No, so, no, yeah. no, yeah, yeah. So I don't know any thoughts from you on 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 that on the com- on the conversation. Uh, yeah, I, I just it, I was kind of yeah just curious really to see. Um, I'm still very curious to see Tatane. I think both of your, you know reactions were really interesting and the spencer as well like you know i think i'm mm. gonna like spencer more than you because i because yeah. while i i think we share very similar kind of opinions um i wonder i don't know i might be able to detach a bit more of my anti-monarchy for the for that um which probably comes from having a, a very sort of staunch diana mum my mum was a huge diana fan so there's a <laughs> like it still is you know um yeah so i'm kind of curious but yeah like you know just and i'm watching the pablo lorraine series that's on apple plus at the moment with julianne moore um so i'm kind mm. of in i mean i'm in a lorraine mood as always so yeah cu- i'm curious yeah, about yeah. those but i'm very excited about the souvenir part two and i thought i was really pleased to hear savina sort of and i thought she you know really kind of eloquently talking about how it's an evolution from the souvenir and you seemed a bit more mm. you seemed a bit more what's the word um, I don't want to say not understanding because it wasn't a misunderstanding. Um, a bit more open to the souvenir in that conversation than you were when it came out. You know, as time sort of shifted for you. Yeah, maybe I, I didn't yeah. particularly like it. To be part honest, two or the first one. Know. So we'll see. The first one yeah. I haven't seen part two. So that's what I thought. Yeah, you, you didn't. Know, really, but, but you seemed a bit more generous towards it in this conversation than you. you know. Yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those things where it's not necessarily a bad movie, but you know what I mean. But, but movies can be great, but they're just not that you just don't get on with them, or or you know, it's not. It's kind of like not your thing, and yeah, I understand why a lot of people like Joanna Hogg's films, um, 
and I think they are doing something interesting in 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 the sort of like film film world. I think, that, but hmm, yeah, I, I I'll have to go back and rewatch it. Really, I think it's it's one of those things. It's like a lot of things where you go back and and sort of think, ah, oh, you know, I saw this the first time out and I had this initial reaction, but actually coming back to it again, there's a there is kind of inter- interesting stuff or. Things that maybe I didn't notice that should should have appealed to me or I should have recognised as 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 being um, you know yeah. in- interesting. Stop saying interesting, but you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> we're, we're thinking about you know. Yeah, no, just curious. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah, that's definitely a film I'm very very excited about seeing. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you tell us about Drive My Car? Because uh, I think I'm right in saying that's your your film really of the festival. Yeah. I mean, yeah, where to, where to start with this film? Um, I haven't stopped thinking about it since I saw it. Um, you know, I did classic Neil hyperbole, like just like, I think it's a stone cold masterpiece. I think it's an absolutely incredible piece of work. Right. Um, yeah, everything about it is extraordinary. I think it's yeah, um, Hamaguchi's three hour um, kind of. <laughs> story about a man who's um yeah he's kind of having marital problems he's a, he's an actor and director of theater his wife's a screenwriter he's having marital problems and um they've they've lost a child and then his wife dies and he go and sort of two years later he goes to hiroshima to stage a version of uncle vanya which he's directing um and through a weird loophole in this place in hiroshima this kind of theater festival um he he has to have a driver so he likes okay. to practice his lines in the car um, okay <laughs> and he like he, he sort of learns so he has it's kind of nice device where and then he has this this young woman who drives him to and from rehearsals and yeah so that's the kind of the plot um but it's just it's absolutely mesmerizing and beautiful the it's it's a film about theater you know and it's a film mm. about art and a life in art um and it does this kind of extraordinary thing where it it both is you know a film about chekhov um and particularly you know using chekhov's work as a way of kind of presenting a kind of philosophy of life you know in yeah, terms yeah, of, yeah. you know labor and dedication to art and and, and but it also is a you know you you see this staging of 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 Chekhov so it's it's kind of both Hamaguchi's film about this protagonist but it's also a kind of an adaptation and performance of of Uncle Vanya um mm. Uncle Vanya which is just devastating and it the way that everything interlinks um there's this you know so there's this young actor who he wants to play the lead kind of really interesting there's so many interesting casting choices and these characters the actors are just so interesting um yeah you just get to spend so much time in this in this place with these people that just builds to this climax of just utter kind of emotional release um and it's really interesting towards the end like um one of the character selves you know he says like the director says to the young actor you have to yield yourself to it you know because the young actor's like how do i play how do i play this character vanya you know and he says you have to yield yourself to it and it's like just that's what you do with this film you just yield yourself to it and it becomes this utterly magnificent kind of moving moving piece of work um 
yeah. yeah my notes on it were kind of were just kind of all over the shop but it's yeah you're just like yeah you're just watching it unfold and i'm just like i've i've, I've i'm gonna love this film forever you know and i'm gonna go yeah. back to this film forever because it just contains Fantastic. absolute multitudes oh, extraordinary film yeah yeah well that's great to hear i mean it's just it's just wonderful when you when you hear you know that somebody has has watched something that that has really hit them on such a a fundamental level and and you know it's 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 great when it happens in the you know it, when we're so used to watching so many movies and like you know that, that the percentage of them that are so you know three and four star yeah it was okay kind of thing and the, you know we're trying to find interesting insights into into a lot of movies that that you know well and we talk a lot about it you know it takes a lot to make a movie but then when something just hits on on that on that visceral level, intellectual level, but emotional level at the same time, it's just quite gratifying, you know what I mean? And and yeah, I'm looking forward to looking forward to seeing it. Another one that's kind of like it, you know, there's been quite a lot of long films at at the festival, haven't there? That you've got to kind of commit to, and and you know, did, did you feel that, or were you just in it all the time? And you know what I mean? It sounds that way. Yeah, anyway. yeah. I mean, like you feel the length in the sense of it's 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 a slow film you know it's 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 built with such a kind of slow confidence that you do yeah, feel yeah, yeah. but but it's it that's by design you know yeah. you it, it, it kind of again it invites you in so you spend this time with the characters and i could have spent longer you know because i was just i loved being around them you know and it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. wanted me to just spend time and this is a character who's kind of just trying to deal with these kind of tumultuous a tumultuous life and you just watch a character deal with a tumultuous life and 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 experience like the the processing of that with them in a way that is meaningful in terms of the time you spend yeah yeah, you know? yeah. 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 fantastic fantastic uh, yeah I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna talk about the Sorrentino the hand of God um, which has got mixed reviews and I think is not perfect but I you know, it, it really highlighted to me this, that debate once again about why, why are we watching films? Is it really, are we on this, in this era where you start from a point of, is, is the film doing things ideologically correctly? You know what I mean? Or do you start from the point of, I'm really going to enjoy this film and, and recognize that there may be sort of certain flaws in it that are ideological, but you know, have the intellectual ability to separate those two things and still enjoy it for what it is. And I think Sorrentino, maybe since The Great Beauty, which I, I think is a masterpiece, has kind of been going maybe sort of slowly downhill. You know, you've had a lot of criticism. Um, and Lauro, I, I think, kind of was, you know, dare I say it, a bit of a dud, you know what I mean? Um, in some, in, I think uh, some people would say that, you know. Um, but it... You know the markers of of his kind of filmmaking are there. So if you like Sorrentino and the way that his almost sort of semi mythical presentation of Italian culture and the, the sort of experience of 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 you know some of the staple elements of art and life and music and food and relationships that he associates with Italian culture. If you if you enjoy that, then this leans into that quite quite heavily and i think it, it's almost like 
to say it's semi-autobiographical is kind of problematic. It's almost mythical biography in a way where, you know, he has this, it's a coming of age tale, which I think is um, a lose to himself growing up. And you have Tony Servio, who is his, you know, regular, um, regular actor, I think, um, playing his father. And the, there is this moment at, at the beginning, at the beginning, so they're, they're in the village of his, you know, his growing up. And it, it is a sort of presentation of their extended family. And the community is based on kind of love, but also, you know, real satirical kind of um, comedy that relates, I think, to sort of those those sort of 70s and eight, uh, 60s and 70s Italian comedies starring Sophia Loren, you know. There, there is a, a, a sort of allusion to that. And, you know, his father and the mother, that they, they have this really loving relationship um but yet the father is having affairs and you know that that, that causes problems and then the, there is the uncles and aunties and extended family and you know he's the, the the young boy is is madly in love with this voluptuous aunt that he's he's got in fact all of the family so you've got this kind of incestuous thing going on that's played for laughs you've got a sweary grandmother who farts and just says vafangulo to everybody who asks her a question. And, they, you know, this is all played for, again, jokes. And the first half of the movie is ju just hilariously light touch and funny in that, in that sense. I mean, some people would say it's probably overbearing. And there are fat jokes and there are gay jokes. So you have to take that on, on board, is, and this is what I'm saying. But it kind of revolves around... You know, the, the myth of Maradona is coming to Naples and the whole beginning of the movie is about, you know, there's no way Maradona is going to come from from Barcelona to Naples. And then he turns up and it, it becomes this, you know, this this the, the, the layering of the story. And then halfway through, this tragedy happens and the tone of the movie shifts entirely, you know, and it becomes about when you've had this upbringing and this this context about which has structured your entire life how do you then go forward after that when that is taken away from you um and yeah i, I mean it, it's prop possibly the most fully cinematic pleasure i've had in a movie for for a long for a long time up to up until that point um until i saw macbeth maybe a week later which was great as well and maybe i'll i'll have a chance to talk about that but yeah, the filmmaking craft is absolutely fantastic. And it's it's one of those movies that you, reminds you that the full extent of what is possible on screen, when that when that is done so well, it's it's just it's just wonderful to watch. It looks it looks fantastic. Um and it doesn't sort of hold back on that sense of, yeah, you're you're here to kind of experience amplified emotions, you know, to, to, to their fullest extent. And so if you like if you like the great beauty, I think you will really sort of like this. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like a Fellini movie when you're talking about it like that. You know, someone who, you know, has kind of come in and out of fashion for those very same things yeah. in terms of like the the operatic or kind of mythologizing of of his yeah. life and an Italian life. I think so. It's interesting that yeah, he's yeah, he probably is out of step with what audiences and critics yeah, yeah, yeah. are saying films should be about now. But hopefully enough people will see it and he'll get his mm. his due. Uh, in the ways that you know, like you say, it's not about not not criticizing the bits that aren't, but but give you know give due yeah, where yeah, yeah. credit where it's due kind of thing. Cool, so, wonderful. Yeah, sounds a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you, I think you like it, and I think you're, I, you know, I, I I trust that you 
like certainly you can recognize some of the things that I'm talking about, but we'll sort of be able to say, this is just good fun. You know what I mean? And we're, we're really yeah. well made good fun, you know? And I think, you know, more and more I do feel like I want to, I want to be entertained yeah. by filmmaking, you know, and, and craft and, and, and yeah, just, yeah, like have some fun at the movies again, you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. as much as, as much as those other things are important. If it, it can't be the only, the only approach to cinema that, mm. that, that, that is valid. Yeah, no, absolutely right. Absolutely right. So do you want to finally talk, talk about the Panahi as a, and, and then maybe I'll mention Macbeth very quickly at the end? Sure. Yeah, so Hit the Road is uh, an Iranian road movie by Panah Panahi, Jafar Panahi's son. It's his first feature, and it is wonderful. Awesome. <laughs> it is, you know, it's it's very Iranian, um, and yeah, it kind of it certainly puts sort of Panahi Junior in that lineage of of Kiristami and Panahi, but also there's yeah, there's a really interesting voice there of his own and it follows this family who are um yeah kind of taking a trip to the border um of iran so that the oldest son can uh flee the country right so to avoid uh conscription gotcha. and that's it really it's just you know it follows this amazing family with their so the, the dad's in a plaster cast because he's broken his leg so he's sort of in the back of the car with his leg up There's, they've got a younger son um, sort of six or seven who's just you know hilarious like amazing character um, and then and then the mum and the son are in the front and they've got a dog in the back and the dad had picked up this dog from the street and sort of made it into a pet and it's kind of old and riddled with disease and dying but you know they can't they can't try and <laughs> they can't kill it they're trying to get rid of it like but they don't want to, the son, the youngest son, to have to confront the death of the dog, and it's very obvious that the son knows this dog. This dog is on its way out. Um, yeah, and it's kind of they meet people along the way, and it's just, it's absolutely beautifully crafted. It's so funny. Like the characters are so fun. The characters feel sort of the least typical, and they feel like you know, I don't want to say Western characters, but they feel like you know, almost scripted characters in that traditional sense. They feel a bit more archetypal, a bit more kind of larger than life very much dramatically conceived in a way that often we assume that Iranian cinema is, is closer to improvisation and sort of realism in terms of the crafting of characters um, this feels very different but the film slowly gets to the kind of the politics of this decision and the rupture that it's causing in the family um, and just the kind of the desperation of it's, it's similar to Flea, really, trying to find passage mm. out of the country so that the, he can be safe. Um, and what they, and it alludes to what they've had to do to sacrifice the, the, the getting him out of the country. Gotcha. Um, in a in a way that is kind of really, it's not overtly critical. You know, it's just it's it doesn't explicitly state you know the why he's leaving, other than you know that they just they they don't feel like he can stay and mm. and have a life. Um, yeah, it's really wonderful. Um, looks beautiful, and then, then at the end they sort of arrive at this camp with other, um, other people who are doing the same thing. It just it's really moving, and yeah, it's it's really beautiful film. Fantastic, and and one best film. Um, it did, um, and one of the things that, that that was interesting to me, just sort of re doing a little bit of reading after I'd re I'd saw that, was that it it's. Um, 
somebody had mentioned that it it is very different from what we see from Jaffa Panahi, which is kind of interesting because you know that the um, the there are sons of filmmakers and they often really do take the mantle of the style and and, and the tone of the father. You know what I mean? Mm. And uh, who's the oh god. Who's the one who made the the very not John Carpenter? It's the Brandon Cronenberg, is it? The... Yeah, Bra- yeah, Cronenberg. So, so Brandon Cronenberg would be a key example. I mean, you know, he made a great film, but it it, it really is Cronenberg esque in that sense. Yeah. But it seems to me that that, that this director, it, I haven't seen it yet, but there's a clear sense in which that this is a this is a a, a a voice apart from from. Yeah, absolutely. And what's what links it is is the limitations of making work in Iran. You know, this is mm. very few characters, one location, the car, um, and a lot of it's shot within the car um, on the road. You know, um, and it gets a bit more expansive as it goes. But they're, mm. they're the limitations that we know come from trying to make work in yeah, Iran. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. so it's it's kind of bound by that in the way that his dad mm. is, but does is it's no way restricted. You know, it's kind of, there's a right. freedom to it in terms of his own exploration of character and dynamics that is sure, sure, sure. that is unique and which is lovely because you get those two things married together in such a special way i think um yeah, yeah really yeah, really yeah. exciting film great wonderful so finally and very quickly um yeah one of the last movies i saw was on the sunday and i got up early for the press screening of the tragedy of macbeth which is joel cohen's singular directed um, adaptation of Shakespeare's play, obviously starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand and an all-star cast, really. Um, And what was interesting about this was the night before I had seen Macbeth in the Almeida Theatre starring Saoirse Ronan. Oh, nice. So it was a very weird, almost, you know, sociological research project or media studies research project in terms of seeing the play first and then seeing a movie adaptation of the play. And the the, the play at the Almeida with Saoirse Rona has got great reviews. And I thought it was a, a fantastic production. And I thought the Saoirse Ronan was great. And I thought the whole cast was was great. It was really good, don't get me wrong. But I thought the one thing that was a problem with it was... That interplay between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and how their relationship sort of structures her her kind of pushing Macbeth into doing what he did in terms of in terms of you know killing the king king was not articulated in as clear a way as I've seen in other plays, right? So then the next day I turn up in the morning to see um see Macbeth again at the cinema and you know one of the advantages of that was oh I I kind of got more of it (laughs) you know what I mean because you know what it's like Shakespeare's language you 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 can drift in and out of it and what I read this it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant the 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 Cohen movie because I think what it does is it it really utilizes what's great about the text what's great about theatre and what's great about cinema altogether in this production, which is, you know, I can't give it any higher praise than that. I mean, one of the things it does, which obviously when you're watching a play you can't do, it utilizes close-up. The whole thing is so heavily, um, the, the, the clear, the, the device that is being deployed here is close-up. And what they've, what they've done is, I mean, you've seen Francis, Francis McDormand, I say, is... is is an actor who, when you see her out in public, does not give a shit about glamming herself up anymore, right? Let's put it that way. So 
what what the movie has done, it's shot in, in four by three, black and white. Absolutely crisp, clear black and white. You know, really sort of noirish in a sense. And they've clearly made her and Denzel Washington up. So they have no blemishes on their face to almost. And their hair is done. And, and it almost gives them a, a, a sheen of unreality. But what that does it, is it allows every little muscle and every little gesture and eye movement on their face to be exaggerated. And it has this sort of Mount Rushmore effect where the, the words of Shakespeare are really, you know, accentuated through the movement of the face, which you just can't get at the theatre because you're so far away. So that use of the cinematic device of the close-up really augments the performances that you get, you know, in 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 the delivery of the story and of, of the characterization. It's... You know, I could go on for a long time about it, but it, it's truly wonderful. And I think even if you're not the world's biggest Shakespeare fan, it's worth it just for the the, the visual impression that you get in terms of what what um, what Cohen has, has done here. In terms of, like I say, sort of being faithful to this being a, a theatrical production, but utilizing cinematic mechanisms in order to, to make that even more impactful. It's great. Awesome. Yeah, and it very sounds very similar to Drive My Car, like that layering of like you get in that you get the film, the the, the theatre as a as a form, and uh, and Vanya, Vanya as a text, um, and everything else kind of it, just the yep. way it works together. It sounds great. I was a fan of the 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 Justin Kurtzall Macbeth from a few years ago because I think oh I was yeah because I think again you're right that yeah, yeah. that that relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth was so so well defined and so clear in terms of yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. the 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 interdependencies and the the yeah, the, yeah, sort, yeah, yeah. the the way that that works yeah so i'm i'm very excited about that um yeah i mean it's it's interesting because as mu- as good as an actor as Saoirse Ronan is you know you go to a different level and somebody with a kind of a, a little bit more age and maybe a little bit more sort of weight in delivering that character just puts it on a on a completely different level you know cool yeah, exciting. Great. Lots, lots covered there, wasn't there? That was a lot. So, lots covered there. That was a yeah, a big ep- episode. So, I hope you enjoyed that. We are going to go over to the bonus now and discuss maybe a couple of other titles, including a movie that I absolutely hated. So, if you want to, uh, if you want to hear about that and maybe what Neil thinks about that, because I don't think Neil would have hated it as much as me for sure. But interesting, uh, yeah, interesting yeah, take on that. That'll be, I think, that'll be uh, worth tuning in for. In the office. For sure. Worth you know, <laughs> worth paying two pound for, I think, for the uh, the Patreon bonus. If you want to come and join us in the the after party cocktail lounge, that is the uh, the cinematologist bonus. But um, indeed, Neil, lovely to be back. Will we um, do we know what our next episode is going to be at this point? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, we've got a couple lined up, and we got we're, we're we're taping an interview together in a couple of weeks, yep. which will be fun, and that yep. might be the next one. That might um, be the next one. But yeah, lots lots of things circulating. Um, but yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Been really nice to do the London Film Festival yep. in, in in a decent whack. Yeah, um, and, and covering a lot of different films. So yeah, really, no, absolutely, really fun. absolutely. And hoping to catch up on some of the ones that I've missed at, at Brighton. Thanks very much to Savina for coming on again a link to her stuff that she's writing on the show notes so so check out the work that she's doing which is always good and yeah as usual thank you very much for for your support this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening